All right. Hello and welcome to our next episode of The Second Cup Show. I'm Deidre Braley. I'm the host and author behind The Second Cup. And it's a place where we make a habit of skipping the small talk so we can get to the good stuff. If you have been following along with The Second Cup on Substack or Instagram for any amount of time this year, you've probably noticed that one of my central themes has been delight and that I've been on a quest to figure out what it looks like to recover from being a chronic overachiever. And maybe some of you can relate to this. I've been trying to find some answers to big questions like, does having fun matter? Is happiness enough accomplishment for one day? Is the pursuit of delight selfish or is it essential? In my research, I have like maxed out my library card and probably the goodwill of the dear interlibrary loan people. And I've checked out tons of books on happiness and beauty, rest, delight, wonder. One of the books um, that I happened to check out was this one, The Fun Habit. And so you can imagine how delighted I was when I posted about it on Instagram and the author himself, Mike Rucker, commented on my post. I couldn't resist and I had to invite him onto the show so I could pick his brain about all things fun. Um, So today I am beyond excited to introduce you to Mike Rucker, the author of The Fun Habit. Mike, welcome and thank you for joining us. Oh my goodness, thanks so much for having me. I've been so excited for this conversation (laughs) and I know that a lot of my viewers have been too. Um, So you wrote an entire book, about fun. And everyone that I've talked to about this book, which is a lot of people, like wherever I go, I'm like, hey, have you read this book? I'm reading The Fun Habit. Have you read The Fun Habit? Um, They say, say, oh, fun. I could use more fun in my life. I should check that book out. So it almost seems to me like in the adult world, at least, that a lot of us are suffering from like a major fun deficit. Why do you think that is? So especially in the Western world, I think there's so many different headwinds, right? It's a complicated uh, question to answer. Um, There's a long answer, right? But we'll try and give a short one, you know, with with a few bullets. So one is we are dealing with more information than we ever had. And to be able to make sense of a complex world, we need algorithms and what in psychology we call heuristics. That's just a fancy way of you know, we create these pathways, right? I need to get my kids to school. So I have this very linear way to do it, right? I need to pay my bills. So I have this system to do it. And so we create these systems that we deploy and it allows us to kind of think less. We call that cognitive load and be able to survive in this world that's just sending us information all the time, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're busy. Um, For folks around our age, we're stuck in a sandwich generation, which for the first time in any modern era, we're having our kids a little bit older, right? And our parents are living a little bit longer. So many of us are having to deal with both child rearing, but then also taking care of parents that, um, you know, in previous eras were able to help with some of that, uh, you know, child rearing. So we're busy in that capacity. Mm -hmm. And then we're brought up in this frame of meritocracy. So we've been kind of taught that we always sort of need to chase that next trophy right? And that's what's important. So we look at constructs like time is money. And if we're kind of wasting time, right, then somehow money is coming out of our pocket. 
the problem is, is what has happened is we haven't given credence to the fact that we need some slack in the system. So oftentimes when folks sort of at first blush, you know, get access to my work, they're like, oh, well, this is, you know, is he just kind of proposing, you know, this whimsical approach, you know, because there are a lot of folks that really celebrate play and, and they should, right? Because that kind of stuff is important. But my message is a little different. It's that if we don't have downtime, if we don't preserve time for enjoying the things that we do for rest and what we call active leisure so that we're putting aside at least temporarily some of the big heady problems that cause us stress, we will eventually get burnt out and not have the capacity to actually enjoy those. And so again, to circle back to the spirit of your question, the fact is, is that we're just busier than we ever have been. And we've been socially conditioned to think that if we take our foot off the gas pedal, somehow we won't succeed in this sort of paradigm that we're in, in, existing. The good news is, I think, what's coming to light fairly quickly, it certainly has with sleep now. Because if you remember in the 90s, we were even celebrating sleep deprivation, right? You know, if you're grinding out the Gary V's of the world, and he's even walked that back. So whenever I bring up his name, I always want to make it clear that he's even admitted that his old message um, you know, needs to be kind of walked back. But we were celebrating the entrepreneurs that were, you know, taking things like um, uh, medat, what is it, you know, stimulants essentially, right? So that they could, and because we saw the consequences of that. So that you now have peak performers really championing sleep. And I think you're going to start to see the same with leisure. Um, and unfortunately, here in the US, we're kind of the last in line to get the message. You're starting to see, you know, um, Things like in France, they shut down email servers on Friday so that the weekends are protected. You know, we call these transition rituals, you know, so that, yeah, go ahead, work hard between Monday and Friday, but we're not going to send emails, you know, on the weekend. So that time is preserved for renewal. Um, you know, you saw New Zealand try a four day work week in earnest and all of the benefits that came from that productivity didn't go down, but things like sick days and absenteeism. Um, really started to improve. So we get it, right? It's just for whatever reason, um, we're kind of the last to get the message. Yeah, I think that, you know, not too long ago, I wrote a um, an article called, uh, Don't Tell My Husband I Napped Today. And it wasn't really about um, my husband at all. My husband is wonderful. He supports my napping habits. But, you know, I struggle with those feelings of like, when I do have even time for leisure, I have a hard time taking it because I know that there are other people out there that are working and moving forward. And, you know, you go into TJ Maxx or Marshall's and you see all the little placards and notebooks that say hustle, boss, boss, babe, things like that. And it just sends this message that we need to be always moving forward. And so yeah, and it's insidious, time. to be quite honest. We now know that those kinds of messages, um, when they don't hit, right? Like if you find them aspirational, but you know they just won't fit into your life design, great mm -hmm. cognitive dissonance and dissonance rather. And if that kind of uh, roots, you know, if, if that starts to grow um, roots in your identity, then you can start to feel like you're disassociated with um, what you're trying to achieve. And so um, I often cite her work, but Dr. Iris Mouse out of uh, Cal Berkeley's done a lot of work in this area. Mm -hmm. You keep getting bombarded with those messages when you are immortal, right? These are all, 
you know, kind of superhero messages, right? I mean, who can have good days only, right? I mean, they're gonna be slings and arrows of life. And so you're like, wait, you know, why is everyone, you know, having this best life and yet I have these challenges? Well, guess what, you know, those are curated lives that you're consuming. You know, I mean, this modern sort of mechanism of social media has, you know, poured fire on this. I mean, I think our parents still tried to keep up with the Joneses and they're, you know, that becomes problematic, but it's manageable. But now the Joneses are fake, right? Now the Joneses are able to, uh, you know, it's at a global scale and they're able to curate their life in a way that makes it look amazing when you're not getting to see that they have the same challenges as you. And then you compare yourself against this false ideal and it becomes really problematic, right? One, it wastes a lot of energy because if you start to ruminate on it, then instead of having fun, right, what you're doing is sitting and, and, and you're in a space that isn't so much fun. And right. so it's this huge missed opportunity. But even more so at a psychological level, it's kind of cognitive behavioral therapy in reverse. And so for folks that don't know what that is, it's essentially we know that creating an action solution oriented approach is one of the best ways to mitigate poor mental hygiene. Um, and but the opposite is true, too. If you're always ruminating on sort of where you wish you were, that's going to get insidious and you're going to start to look for artifacts that kind of support um, this identity forming in your head. Right. Um, and you start to lose some of that agency and autonomy you have to be able to better yourself. And so it's unfortunate, but you're exactly right. When we get bombarded by this and we let it in, we don't realize that it is just marketing. You know, we kind of take it like, you know, as an ideal um, it can, it can do real damage. You know, you're now hearing words, even on lay media, like toxic positivity and moral injury. And that's certainly what these things are doing. They're toxic and they're, and they're creating moral injury. Yeah. And I think just saying that out loud is helpful for people to hear like, oh, um, maybe this is a real thing that I'm dealing with. Maybe it's not just me. Maybe a lot of people are feeling this burden that we don't necessarily need to be feeling, but we don't know how to get out from underneath it. I think this leads into um, another question that I had for you perfectly about the quantified self movement, which I had never heard of it um, like that before. But as you were explaining it, you were calling it the you know quant, as in um, using data. You really did read the book. <laughs> oh, I read every page of the book. And I, uh, copious notes. Um, so you're talking about like counting our calories, our steps, how many minutes we meditated in the morning. And um, you talked about how using quant as motivation can be sometimes more harmful than helpful. And that really resonated with me because I came to a point maybe a year or two ago that I had to get rid of my Fitbit. I always was wearing my Fitbit and um, I started just becoming so obsessed with my sleep patterns I loved um, competing with my husband for how exhausted I was. I'd be like, I was up with the baby all night. And look, I only slept two solid hours of good rest. Um, but I also, you know, I wanted to make sure I got my 10,000 steps in. And that I was applying that to lots of areas of my life too, not just with my Fitbit. And so every day I was feeling like I needed to meet these certain data points, reading enough um pages of a book each day, spending enough minutes doing yoga, like all sorts of things. And even the things that were good that were meant to help me, I felt so burnt out trying to reach that data point every day with all of those different things. And so I was like, 
something's got to give. I got to take my Fitbit off. Yeah. So I think, but I do think that has, that comes into play too with having trouble having fun because we've come to quantify um, or equate worthwhile with quantifiable. So having fun, something that's not always quantifiable can feel like indulgent or even sinful at times. So what advice do you have for those of us who desperately want to have more fun, but we have trouble justifying it because we can't necessarily quantify it? Yeah, no, that's, there's a lot to unpack there, right? Obviously. So let me see where to start. First, you're spot on. I think one of the arguments, so I leaned on work from Dr. Jordan Ekin out of Duke on this. She's done some amazing work. And so let's start by saying we're not villainizing that, right? When you first started with your Fitbit, because um, I very much still play in the digital health space. So that's why I found this right. narrative really interesting. It can be really illuminating, right? I think the problem is if you go into it and get coached by the device, then sometimes things that you didn't necessarily want to even worry about become interesting because it's right there, right? So um, sometimes these can be really useful tools, but then let's go to the next step, which you're, you're exactly right. What happens is what happens when you meet your threshold and these devices keep prodding you to do more, right? In the book, I talk about how what happened to you happened to me as well with meditating. Um, I was using, uh, I believe it was the Muse app, but I don't want to villainize them. It was one of these apps that was essentially, oh, you know, you meditated, you know, 60 minutes this week. Why don't you shoot for 80? Well, first of all, I don't have that time. And second of all, 60 is like the minimal viable dose. It's, it's amazing. And 80 wouldn't do any more for me. And so I was really proud of Sam Harris. He has one of the most popular meditation apps um, called Waking Up. And he completely decoupled the gamification aspects from his app because he saw this as problematic as well. He calls it spiritual materialism, right? Like to your point, bragging about, hey, you know, I've grinded it out more than you, you know, <laughs> like that, that's not healthy, right? And so um, to the extent that these things can support your healthy habits, great. But to the extent that they make make them harmful and weaponize them, that's awful, right? But yet that often happens too late, right? Where we're like, you know, I'm winning the race. Well, guess what? That race never ends. You know, the way the algorithms have been created, they're always going to be like, you did great. Let's add five more minutes, right? They, they just weren't designed that well. So that's specific to, you know, the, the first part of your question, right? But if you look at that with regards to anyone that's kind of tracking the happiness too, and that was something that I was doing, if you have this sort of threshold of like, okay, this was a great day. I always want to hit it. Like th at a certain point, you're going to max out. And so we also know that's really problematic because you, at, there are going to be days that you just can't do that. And so even though you would have felt great that day, if you weren't thinking about it, you know, because like happy is happy, right? Instead, you're kind of comparing yourself to yourself. Um, and then you can really start to then perseverate, right, on those bad days. And so it gets back into, you know, falling into these downward spirals that, you know, again, when we've tracked these folks can actually lead to clinical outcomes, which is just, you know, really heartbreaking when you think about it, right? But lastly, and I cite this re research, you know, generally in every one of these interviews, but what we now know 
Um, it, it's called the hedonic flexibility principle. And not to geek out on, on the science too much, but I'll just tell you that we now know that the folks that are able to preserve time for leisure are the most productive. So for me, that's the big punchline, right? Um, if you take your foot off the gas, you're not going as fast as you were, but you are going to be able to drive forever where we know that folks that keep their foot on the gas, you know, just like a, a car that's redlining, eventually are gonna burn out. And we're seeing record levels of that across all vocations, right? Especially here in the US. And then all of these things that you set up and dreamed about aren't gonna happen anyways. And you're left wondering why, right? When instead, if you did value, um, you know, the ability to have some time with your friends, to take those naps, right? To engage in some self-care, to actually think that life is worth living, then when you show up the next day, you're gonna have the vigor and vitality to actually you know, take on those big challenges, feel good about your day's work, and then go out and be like, hey, you know, now I get to play a little bit. But just so many of us are like, we don't know where the finish line is. It, it, it's become, you know, again, how I told you, this is complex and there's so many different headwinds. Another challenge, right, is we've moved from algorithmic work to heuristic work. And that's just a fancy way of saying, we used to build things and we'd have quotas and like, okay, so, you know, I built my 30 widgets, now I can enjoy the weekend. With knowledge work, you can work as much as you want. You know, there, our to-do lists don't end now, right? And the finish line never ends. And so some folks get addicted to work because they can essentially answer emails till the middle of the night. But when we scrutinize what we, we call that admin work, when you scrutinize admin work, it never leads to outcomes. It's just kind of perpetually, you know, ceasing everybody and folks feel like they need to chime in. And when you look at that work product, it's it, you're not really accomplishing anything because it's unstructured, right? Yeah. And so, but it makes you feel good because you're like, you know, kind of going back to, you know, the the playful way you were you were speaking to your partner. It's like, well, look though, but I worked from 8 a.m. till 9 p.m., right? I'm a hustler. Like, yeah. are you? Because you still didn't accomplish much, you know? <laughs> so it makes you feel good. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's also not sustainable. So it's a double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. One, it makes you feel like you're working, but you're not, right? Again, it's admin work that doesn't really contribute um, you know, to what you're, for what most people are trying to achieve, uh, you know, episodically the, that's the exception, right? You have a big presentation, sure. Grind it out that week. Right. But we're talking about people that habitually do this, you know, folks that think that they're being productive by answering emails on the toilet, things like that, where, you know, lay people used to kind of, you know, give those as like productivity tips. And we just now know that grinds folks out because they're think, you know, you need, time where you're just kind of your brain isn't working the same way any other machine needs downtime to kind of you know lower the threshold of work um and so you, th th that that is the punchline the, the the folks that are protecting their leisure time whether that's through deliberately putting things on their calendar or having a transition ritual where they're like at 7 p.m i'm turning off my devices and my notifications because i'm preserving this time for the folks that i love or the things that i really enjoy you know, I'm moving from this sort of me paradigm to a we paradigm because I want to be a part of something bigger um, are the ones producing the best work. And there's also evidence, in, you know, I, I present in the book that these are also the most creative people, because when you when you are working too hard, you have to fall back on those kind of mental scripts, algorithms and heuristics that we talked about at the beginning. And it becomes really difficult to be creative when you're tired and burnt out. You just want to get the day done. 
you don't want to sit for an hour and kind of how could I better myself? There's got to be a better way to do this particular project, you know, um, either in a more advantageous way or a way that would have better impact. When you're, you know, when you're beaten down, you're just like, I want to get this off my desk. I want to cross it off the list. Yeah. Okay. You just said so many things that I want to respond to, like the creativity piece and making time for fun and just having to have like an end place for work. Um, I think the thing I want to speak to first is when I was reading your book, like a big part of the beginning of the book is you talk about the idea of creating a fun file. And then you also talk about from that fun file, creating a short list for fun. Um, And because I am such a task oriented planning kind of girl that likes to have everything in my planner, this really, um, this really inspired me because you said it was okay to schedule fun. And so the week that I read that, I was like, I'm going to see, I'm going to do my own little research here with my life. And I'm going to see if I can try to do something fun, schedule fun each day and still accomplish the tasks that I need to accomplish for work for the week. And so um, I had shared about this on my Instagram. You know, I one day I went to a new coffee shop. The next day I went and got a Cuban sandwich. I went to the Barbie movie by myself. You know, just things that were just for fun that I wanted to do. And I was delighted at the end of the week to find not only had I had fun each day and I was looking forward to the next day being like, what am I going to do today from my list? Um, I got my stuff done. I still got my work done. And so I guess. And let me is- guess. I mean, I don't know if you were mindful of it, but I would, you know, I know from the data, it's, a, it's not going to work for everyone, but that a majority of folks also feel better. Maybe their work wasn't more fun, but they feel better about the day because they know it's balanced. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it felt good at the end of the day, I guess. I was getting to the point sometimes where the end of the day would come and I would just feel exhausted and also be like, what did I do today that I even enjoyed? Like, what does it matter if I got ahead in a project that I'm working on if I didn't enjoy it and I didn't enjoy anything else that I did? Um, and so I, I found this like sense of kind of like contentment and happiness just at the end of the day being like, I did something fun today. And it's so fun to get out of your routine as well. Um, yeah, the novelty aspect's big. And then another, um, just really quick, because I think for a lot of folks, they kind of trick themselves into thinking that they're having fun in the evening. But an important concept to understand is, are you really just displacing boredom or frustration from the day, um, you know, with things that are really easily accessible, you know, maybe scrolling Instagram too much. You and I are both on there. So I'm, I'm not mm-hmm. villainizing that, but, you know, essentially if you get stuck in a real hole or whatever, and I asked you, you know, tell me like three things that you saw that kind of lit you up and you're like, ah, I don't know. I just laughed a little. Right. Or not necessarily watching your favorite show. Like you have a date night with your partner, you know, and you have, you just really enjoy their company and you really enjoy the content. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is you're plopping down on the couch because you hated the day and you just want it to be over. You know, you have maybe one extra glass of wine and you couldn't tell me what you watched because you just kind of surfed, you know, different channels. 
those things you feel like, oh, well, I mean, that was kind of enjoyable. But really, if you look at it under scrutiny, those aren't things that we remember. We don't feel good about that time. So it doesn't lead to betterment. And when you check in with those folks, they didn't show up the next day, you know, feeling good about like, oh, last night was amazing, right? Instead, it, you know, it becomes this habitual routine. And then it kind of becomes insidious. This, this doesn't happen to everyone, but a lot of times you can see this uh, kind of correlate with sleep deficits because, you know, it can start to lead to um, poor sleep hygiene uh, and things of that nature, especially if you kind of fall asleep on the couch because, you know, you don't have you know, you are depleted and, and things like that. So we're getting the weeds, but, you know, that's what a lot of us have come to, you know, you talk to a lot of folks and they're like, oh yeah, that is kind of what I do, you know? Totally. Totally. And I, I had come to a point um, last year where I noticed that was happening to me a lot. I, you know, I would, I'd be like, well, I'll have a glass of wine because that's fun. You know, and then I wake up the next morning, I'd be like, actually, that's not fun because I don't feel very good right now. Um and I made a little list and I, I wrote what I think will be fun and what is actually fun or what I think will make me feel good and what what actually makes me feel good. And I was surprised to find that in the what I think will make me feel good category were things that were really passive, um, like binging Netflix, eating a lot of Chinese food, um, drinking a second glass of wine, like um, – and the things that were in the other category of things that I actually found fun when I was doing them were creating something, um, moving my body with somebody, like doing some sort of new exercise. Um, and it reminds me a lot of what you were writing about in your book. You were talking about activities that are, I think, like self-expansive versus something. More forms of, yeah, escapism. Escapism. And um, it made me wonder if you could talk to us a little bit like what would be some activities i know everybody's version of fun looks different but what are some examples of what could be more self-expansive rather than just trying to like fall into nothingness and escape yeah. from our lives and things that will actually make us feel like we had fun at the end yeah and to your point i you kind of need to understand you know, your preferred level of arousal. Like, so for, for some folks, uh, well, let's, let's kind of start at the starting line, right? Fun certainly needs rebranding, especially here in the West, right? A lot of folks, it, it's so unfortunate. They'll be like, well, I guess I just don't, you know, I'm just not a fun person. I'm like, well, tell me your definition of fun. And it will be a regurgitation of, you know, what they see on an ad, right? Like, you know, an, an influencer clicking their heels on the beach or, you know, at a concert or whatever, you know, I, I just uh, wrote for CNN or it, I didn't write it, but it was an interview for CNN this week. And of course they picked a picture of folks on top of a roller coaster. Right. And like, that wasn't my choice. It was the editor's choice, but cause that's what we think is fun here in the U S but fun is just anything that you find pleasurable that you're drawn to that's, that's healthy. Right. And so let's start there because a lot of folks are like, I'm not fun. If you really enjoy being by yourself at a pool with a book that you're engrossed in, then you're a fun person. If you're, if, if that's in your life, just because you're not going to a Taylor Swift concert, you know, every other week that, you know, you are just as fun as them. You just have a different preference. So let's start. There, I love right? that. <laughs> yeah. um, but if you're not doing any of that, if you can't look back at the 168 hours of your previous week and find any of those things, you know, despite your, your preference for arousal, 
then you might be in a fund deficit, right? And that's what we need to correct. To answer your question, what are things that where you are actually finding pleasure, where it's not just displacing discomfort, where you're not escaping something, where you're like, I actively want to do this, right? So there's a couple sort of, you know, heuristics to, uh, good heuristics that we, you can use. And it's like, am I getting to do this or do I have to do it? Is it through the lens of duty? Is it through, you know, the lens of, well, I just, you know, I just need this day to be over or is it, oh my gosh, this is something that I wanted to do or something I wanted to see or an environment that I wanted to be in. And, you know, looking at those kind of three constructs, the people that you're doing it with, um, the activity that you're enjoying or the environment, um, if those really resonate with you, then you're likely on the right path. If you're like, eh, I don't really know why I'm doing this. I mean, it's amazing that you had the foresight to make a list like that. I mean, when you kind of look at those things under scrutiny, uh, it, for most people, it will illuminate really quick. Like, oh, none of these things really are leading to my betterment, right? And betterment can just be coffee with a friend. I'm not talking about, you know, climbing Mount Everest here. I'm just talking about things not that fine. feed your soul, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The, I really like that. I think I had read in another book, the, the idea of not um, happiness shaming people and that everybody has kind of a different happiness style. And it feels like that way with, with fun too, that we all have maybe a different fun style and that's completely okay. Yeah. Um, that's, the, that's what makes these books difficult to write, right? Because, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, fun is a preference, right? And so as long as you're not harming anyone, you get to decide what that is. Um, you know, and then, it, you know, I think even I have a something called the play model in the book and, you know, they needed icons for it. And it's like, I think for a living, I had a surfer, right? And like, well, I don't like surfing. So I guess this isn't for me. Like, mm -hmm. that wasn't, you know, like you gotta be so careful. <laughs> like, that wasn't the point, you know, <laughs> just one example of the, 500 different things you can do. You write your own icon. And in fact, if I ever revise the book, maybe I'll be like, can you draw your, your icons in here for you? Yeah, That's for a yourself. great idea. I'd have a little picture of me with a cup of coffee and a book. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> My fun icon. Yeah. Um, okay, so I wanted to talk to you before we, before we start to wrap up our interview. One thing I wanted to make sure that we talked about was your chapter on parenting and fun. Um, I read that chapter so quickly. It was like way past my bedtime and I could not put it down because it was just, um, it was just speaking to a pain point in my life. Um, I laughed out loud at the quote at the beginning, Ryan Reynolds quote, when it said, That's I wrote so it down great. on our 6am walk. My daughter asked where the moon goes each morning. I let her know. <laughs> I let her know it's in heaven visiting daddy's freedom. And I was like, now if that ain't the truest thing. Um, so as we were talking about before our interview, I've got a four-year-old and a three-year-old at home and another on the way. And I, I really want to be a fun mom. I really do. I watch my husband like pretending he's a jaguar with our son and like roughhousing and playing. And I love that for them, but it's nothing that I'm interested in. And I often am feeling like so burnt out on just getting supper done and getting them in their jams. And you talked about the agonizing bath time and bedtime yeah, yeah. routine. Um, but when the kids ask me to play, sometimes I just want to hide in the bathroom and lock the door. And um, 
in your book, you said sometimes being asked to play feels right up there with hearing like, I just wet the bed. Yeah. So <sighs> unstructured play, I feel like I'm not alone in this, can feel agonizing for some parents. And um, you talked about how our play muscles can actually kind of atrophy over time as we become adults. Do you have any advice? I know, and you, we talked about how that comes with being busy and having systems in place to get to get crap done. But can you talk to us a little bit about how parents specifically might build those muscles up again so we can be the fun parents that we dream of being, but also doing it in a way that's not just like filling us with obligation and dread? Yeah. Well, first, let's take a pause and give yourself some grace because I can tell this is you know, a heady thing and we all feel it. So you're not alone for sure. Right. I mean, I mean, yeah, no, I meant my parents were absentee. They were both professors at UC Davis and they lived in a publisher parish world. And I, you know, was essentially left alone as a latchkey kid. I'm going to get emotional with you here. And, uh, you know, so i constantly have that demon. That I wake up every morning that I want to not be them. You know, I love them to death. They just lived in a different world than I do. But like, so I, I feel what you feel. Like you want to do good, but sometimes, you know, sometimes you're just too tired, for quite frankly, right? And then sometimes you don't know what to do. Um, I, I've, you already know this because you read the chapter. What I find helpful is to kind of, uh, one, understand that you have some control. So, you know, in to the ability that you can start to switch the frame to I get to do this from that I have to do this is it is kind of a first baby step, right? Because to some degree we have to do it. So it's it's semantics, but you do have more control in what you are what you want to engage in, especially if you're premeditated, right? So you know after kind of the fun file exercise, I suggest potentially doing that without their input yet um, for something that you could do with the kids too. So you have that you know, where, where you're sort of in control of that. And then you can co-create it with them, right? If they're like, I hate that, that's not going to be fun for both of you either, right? right? But once you have sort of these options of things that, okay, I can do this with you and it's something that I'm going to enjoy as well, um, then all of a sudden things start to shift because you're not like, uh, it's not, you don't come from this place of dread or, you know, even more pedestrian, a sense of duty. Like, okay, well, this is just another domestic task which is essentially just another work product, right? So you're, you're extending your work day, essentially, you know, um, it's that, oh, okay, this is something where I have these little creatures that I love dearly, and we're going to do something that we all want to do. And so for me, and again, this is where it doesn't mean that you do what I do, but it means, you know, use some creativity to figure out how, you know, it's going to work for you. For me, it's been classes, you know, they both love YouTube. And so, for, you know, in the book, I talk about my daughter and I taking dance classes together. She's moved on. She's now, you know, 11 and doesn't want to dance with her dad, unfortunately, but she wants to cook with her dad. Right. And so this is something we initially did it through cooking classes, but that got expensive. Um, and so now there we found just as good instructors on YouTube. So it doesn't cost any money. And so our time together are because I want to learn how to cook, too, is taking these classes. Um, and so. I, again, I feel like I kind of over talked about the science, you know, sometimes I know I'm so interested in that and can bore other folks, but the, the concept here is transactional analysis. And we know that 
being an adult and a parent can get exhausting. And it also puts the kid in a mode that sometimes um, the kind of back and forth to find that fun is different because they're they kind of like, is this a teaching moment or is this where, you know, me and mom yeah. or me and dad are meant to let our hair down. So when you kind of put somebody else in the teaching position, um, then, you know, what, whatever the mistakes are, because you're setting the playground too, right? The rules of the playground is if they drop something, you know, or whatever, th this is part of the game, right? Where mm -hmm. if I was trying to teach her to cook and, you know, an egg smashed on the floor, like, Sloan, what are you doing? But instead, you know, when we're watching someone else, you know, especially if I make a mistake, we can all just laugh at each other because we can villainize, you know, this character on YouTube rather than, you know, it being, again, this kind of parent or teacher relationship. So, Ooh, I like I, I, yeah, I think, but, you know, to back it up and make it a, a applicable for anybody listening, so how can you create those experiences that are going to be fun for both of you? Like maybe it's reading a book that you care about that you know that they're going to enjoy. And, mm -hmm. you know, the work there might be um, finding out what that is, right? Instead of saying, well, I want to read this book to you. Like you knowing the activity is, um, because, and I'm only bringing it up because you mentioned it, is that I do enjoy reading. Like what is something, you know, maybe a book from your past that you would enjoy reading again that you would want to introduce them to. And yeah. if you don't get it right the first time, you know, that's have, you know, enjoy also the experimentation aspect of it. Like, okay, well, this didn't work, you know, so let's try something else. But, you know, where you really want to start is moving away from, oh, I've got to do this to I get to do this, whatever that looks like for you. Yeah, I think a couple of things that you said were really liberating and that, you know, as parents, we do have control to kind of guide which activities we do, of course, playing upon what our what our kids are interested in too. But um, as you were talking about that, I was like, oh, I like to go around the yard and make little flower bouquets. My son and my daughter both love to do that too. That could, that could count as play, even though I'm not roughhousing with them or pretending I'm a um, large cat, you know, I can, <laughs> I can play with them in different ways. And so that was really liberating. And um, I love the idea of making somebody else the teacher. I say that to my husband all the time that coming from a background in elementary education, I just have a hard time turning it off because I know how I want them to be and the good people I want them to grow up to be. So sometimes I have a hard time just playing it cool and just going with the flow. And uh, it is so interesting be in charge. I would, I would really actually enjoy that. Um, I was my primary mentor is a gentleman by the name of Dr. Michael Gervais and he has a podcast himself. And so he invited me on, you know, to, to, he's always kind of supported my path, but long story short, he's a peak performance psychologist. So he made his name being the psychologist for the Seattle Seahawks and was kind of uh, one of the reasons during, when Russell Wilson was doing well was attributed, you know, to some degree to his success, but cool. he offered up something similar. So, so the reason I'm bringing him up, um, it was the only time where I was kind of like, you know, especially cause he's my teacher, right? He's like, he, he was giving a similar example cause he's very much a teacher, right? Where he's mm -hmm. like, I'm trying to have fun with my son and we're going through these athletic drills and like, sometimes he just doesn't get it. And I'm like, are you listening to yourself talk? <laughs> like, this is so outcome focused. Like, how is this an environment where you've invited fun into the mix? Like there's, you're waiting for him to accomplish something. There's nothing fun about that. And mm -hmm. it, it gave him pause, but I think it is tough to unwind that when you're like, 
you know? And so experimenting, even if it's like one hour a week with like, I don't care what the outcome is. And again, you know, using my own example with Sloan, if the food is awful, that the outcome wasn't a delicious dish. It was spending an hour, you know, one time we, you know, for folks that are my age that like nineties hip hop, um, it, it was a little bit, but we've taken a couple of classes from Coolio, which said, you know, trying to explain to her who Coolio is. And it, was, it was great. So, yeah, you know, I, I guess that would be the last piece uh, uh, to answer your question. It's like, how can we decouple the outcome too, right? If it's a teaching moment, great. Because often I, I've given this advice before and they're like, well, am I not supposed to teach my kids? Like, again, are you listening? Like, no, there there's moments for that, right? Certainly. But we are talking about how do I integrate more fun into my life? And when something, you know, is really focused on needing an end product, oftentimes that's not where fun lives. Well, and I think now more than ever, it's important for parents to teach their kids, maybe not how to have fun because kids inherently know how to have fun, but to teach their kids that fun is important and that making time for fun is valuable even as an adult, because I just see, you know, our kids, especially growing up in the world that we talked about, where maybe things are shifting a little bit, where people are recognizing, oh, yeah, sleep is actually really important, or it's important to be able to turn off our phones sometimes. But I think we're still a long ways away from that being a really widely accepted, maybe people know it, but widely accepted practice. And so I think it's a gift to give our kids the the power of the power of fun and teach them how to build a fun habit as they get older. Yeah. And I've been really interested. You might be closer to this than me. Um, but yeah, and I've only seen correlative studies, so I'm not making a causal argument here, but it's clear that as we've eroded play and creativity in schools, you're seeing interesting consequences, you know, for folks that might be a little bit neurodivergent or um, need kind of, scaffolding, excuse me, scaffolding that's um, unstructured, right? And so, you know, this reduction in physical education, this reduction in things that are enjoyable, like music and drama, um, mm -hmm. we didn't think there would be um, as significant consequences as they are, because you're looking at schools that have deprioritized these programs, and they're having pretty significant academic consequences, right? Yep, we had a lot of conversations about that in my small elementary school. And um, we actually, you talked about in your book, I think, it, is it Kane's Arcade? Yeah. So um, we we looked into that um, because I worked as an instructional strategist. So sometimes I got to like sit in on these conversations about the best way to the best way to teach and, and how to help our kids. And we looked at Kane's Arcade and the International Day of Play where um, kids are invited to just like come to school and bring what kind of whatever they want and just create and teachers are supposed to not do anything basically not try to direct where their play goes not make suggestions not even play with them but just let them play and we so we started doing that every year which was really cool um, but of course that doesn't solve on a day-to-day -day level right. things yeah. getting pulled away but um, I think you know, it's so important for educators to, and I think so many educators do recognize the value of fun and play, but feel from like a, there's a systemic 
structure in place that makes it more and more difficult to build that into a schedule. Um, so it's I get so important to- for thematic analysis, right? I mean, it's clear that if you think that everything needs to sort of have a linear path, then it becomes much harder to synthesize information and pull new ideas from disparate sources. And that's just really unfortunate, you know, especially for things like science, um, where, you know, that's where new discoveries come from. So we've gotten in the weeds, but it's just, it's clear for anyone that is interested in that stuff. um, You know, you don't need to dig deep to figure out the impact that not enjoying yourself um, has. Yeah. Yeah. I think we could have a whole different conversation about education and creativity and the impact of fun and leisure time on that. I I have so many more things I want to talk to you about, um, but I don't want to keep you here forever. So um, it it has been an absolute pleasure to talk with you today. Um, Thank you for letting me pick your brain about all the the things fun. Um, Before we say goodbye, can you just let us know, our audience know, where we can find you and connect with you online And also, just selfishly, I'm wondering if you have any upcoming projects brewing in your mind or that we should keep our eyes open for. Oh, I appreciate that. Um, So the book's out now. You know, uh, I always encourage people to get it from their local bookstore, but it's obviously available at Amazon and wherever you enjoy purchasing your books. Um, I write about the science of fun at michaelrucker.com. And then, yeah, I've been looking at a, a couple of things. I don't know... Uh, you know, I really, I've gone back to my original employer in earnest. So I think, um, you know, uh, having an impact with regards to population health is going to be my focus for the short term, but understanding or helping folks understand what they're giving away, the sort of parity gap that we're seeing increase here in the U S you know, where, uh, the extrapolated value of folks work is going to, you know, a smaller and smaller group of people and what we can do to mitigate that. Uh, you know, it's a pretty heady topic, but I feel like as I'm sharing this message, like, well, it's harder to have fun because I'm working harder than I ever have. And mm-hmm. so when I dug into that data, just to kind of make sure that I understood my argument, you know, we are working for less money when you look at it through inflation yet, you know, especially during the pandemic, um, there are a lot of folks benefiting from the fact that we're all working fairly hard. And so how do we redistribute that sort of equitable um, notion that, you know, it's fine. We don't all need to be rich, but we should also share in the fact that we're all working harder than we ever have. Yeah. Ooh, that's some <laughs> interesting stuff. We'll definitely make sure to stay tuned. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on today. It's been, it's been so much fun talking to you. Likewise, anytime. And I encourage everybody, like bef- my parting shot is I got this book from the library interlibrary loan, like I was talking about, but because I wanted to make so many notes in it, I had to buy my own copy. And I know that it's going to be a book that I keep pulling off of my shelf because it is packed with um, helpful, really realistic things that you can do to actually incorporate fun into your life. It's not a pie in the sky kind of book. I found it to be really, really applicable to my own life. And um that's something that I really appreciated about it. So I encourage everybody, libraries are amazing, but actually buy a copy of this book because you're going to want to have it on your shelf. So oh, thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Mike. Have a great day. All right. Take care. Bye.